Tonight's reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 5, verse 21 to 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and besought him, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a flow of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I shall be made well. And immediately the hemorrhage ceased, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone forth from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had been done to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But ignoring what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, he saw a tumult and people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why do you make a tumult and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and walked, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to get her something to eat. The word of the Lord. nothing nefarious behind the editors of the Arch Book Children's Series decision to title their version of the Bible story you just heard, The Little Sleeping Beauty. Nothing consciously belittling or aggressively sexist, I'm sure. They were just trying to connect with little girls who probably loved Disney's version of the very old folktale known variously as Little Briar Rose, Sun, Moon, and Talia, La Belle à Bois Dormant, some German name I won't even attempt to pronounce, The Sleeping Beauty. But I think it's safe to say it wasn't a very good decision. One of the worst 
first I've encountered so far as we've been revisiting these children's versions of Bible stories throughout this liturgical year. The Gospel version doesn't actually comment on what Jairus' daughter looked like. Whether she was pretty or skinny, dimpled, or freckled doesn't matter to Jesus, I'm pretty sure, doesn't factor in to his decision to raise her from the dead. Even beyond that, though, the Sleeping Beauty isn't a great folktale to conjure up here. If by some chance you're unfamiliar with the Disney's animated version, it's the story of Princess Aurora, who was cursed shortly after her birth by an evil and jealous fairy, Maleficent. Maleficent decrees that on Aurora's 16th birthday, she'll prick her finger on a spingle and die. The 16th birthday is significant because it's sort of seen as the age when a girl becomes a woman. Jairus' daughter dies at 12, according to Mark, the age in first century Palestine where girls are sort of seen to reach that point. They were usually married at 13. Maybe the editors thought, what a cool connection. In Disney's version, a nice fairy alters Maleficent's curse, on the, and so instead of dying, the little beauty will fall into a death-like sleep. Perhaps the editors thought, Aha! Jesus says the little girl is not dead, but sleeping. Princess Aurora can only be awakened from her sleep by true love's first kiss. The curse plays out. A raven acting as a scout from Maleficent alerts her it's time to start moving. Aurora pricks her finger, goes into a sort of coma. But of course, eventually, a handsome prince does awaken her with the true love's first kiss, and they live happily ever after. The thing is that Disney's version really cleaned up the old folktale. The original versions are quite different. There's a wounded finger, a bird, there's some sleeping enchantment. But instead of being awakened by true love's first kiss, the sleeping beauty in one version is abandoned by her father who couldn't bear the grief of her apparent death. So he left her alone in her sleep. She's discovered by a passing king who finds her alive but unconscious and unable to wake her up. He carries her to a bed and rapes her. He leaves her there. Though the princess is unconscious, she gives birth to twins, one of whom keeps sucking her fingers. The twin sucks out the splinter that was stuck deep in her finger, thus lifting the curse. She wakes up, discovers she's a mother, has no idea what happened to her, Eventually, she gets together with the king. And there's another version in the cycle of stories known as Perciforce, which differs slightly, but again, the Sleeping Beauty is raped while unconscious. Italo Calvino included a variant in his famous collection of Italian folktales. In this one, the cause of the prince's sleep is a curse by her own mother. The prince rapes her in her sleep, and her children are born. The girl's mother, the queen, then tries to kill the children, but the story adds the queen did not want to eat them herself, just wanted to serve them to the king. The end. I am 
I'm sure that these early versions of the Sleeping Beauty manifest some Freudian-like unconscious current that may benefit from being brought to light. But I cannot see the wisdom of mixing all that up with the story of Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead by Jesus. I'm sure the editors of the Children's Bible Story series didn't obsessively research the origin of the Sleeping Beauty, as did I. (laughs) Nevertheless, I think this unfortunate choice of a title is telling somehow. The church made a lot of mistakes, mistakes may be a generous way of putting it, with girls in the days some of us grew up in the church and throughout its entire history. Of course, it didn't mean to tap into a mythic-like folktale where a man raping a girl is not a crime, no great offense practically expected. But were they thinking? Jesus, the prince that delivers true love's first kiss? Or were they just not thinking? Just carelessly promoting traditional roles, or carefully promoting traditional roles. And the traditional role for women in the history of Christianity, no one should kid themselves, does not really work out that well for women, to put it mildly. The church fathers and plenty of contemporary church leaders might prefer a sleeping beauty to say a woman demanding equality. Meanwhile, the CDC estimates 1.3 million women are raped in the U.S. each year. 97% of rapists are never incarcerated. A woman's chance of being raped in college is one in four. ISIS has created a sex slave market. You can find it online, apparently, that includes women and girls on the same list as cattle. 30 to 40-year-old girls go for $62. 20 to 30-year-old girls go for 82. One to nine-year-old girls for $165. As much as we might like to see that as some monstrous aberration, it's actually more like the outcome of a very long continuum of the crimes and disorders of patriarchy. In the church throughout its history, has been a great offender in this regard. And not just historically, continually. Again, I'm sure the woman who wrote this book didn't mean any harm when she decided to leave the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years out of this story entirely. Though the two stories are completely intertwined in all of the Gospels. But I think that that decision was kind of another big mistake. And I don't know how many little girls read this book, but they really missed out on something. Something that I think is sort of gorgeous and radical and wild and empowering. The heart of the story, literally the thing implanted in the middle of the depth, the beating heart of the story, the story of the woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years. 
And I am sorry for the little girls who never had a chance to meet her in family devotions or Sunday school or wherever this book was read. Because there's some dynamite in the story of the bleeding woman. Or maybe that's too violent of a metaphor. Maybe it's more like there's a seed planted here that if left to grow might rise up through the cracks in the foundation of the patriarchy in such a way that would it crumble it all to hell. Wait, there I go again with the two dramatic and violent metaphors. If only it didn't keep getting tramped down. Maybe you think I'm exaggerating or that it's wistful thinking. That could be true. But bear with me. So most interpreters agree that the woman bleeding for 12 years was bleeding reproductive blood, menstruating. And this particular type of blood, women's blood, was a very charged subject. It was revered in some cultures as the substance out of which all life was created. This is sort of true, actually, biologically. I mean, human life, anyway. When a woman began to bleed, it meant she could start giving birth to life, something wholly foreign to male experience. In some cultures, a bleeding woman was considered sacred and powerful. Their psychic abilities honed. They were strong enough to heal the sick. Some indigenous cultures believed their blood had the power to destroy enemies. Pliny, the elder or revered Roman naturalist around the time that the Gospels were written, wrote that a bleeding woman could scare away hailstorms, whirlwinds, and lightning. When she walks around the field, caterpillars, worms, and beetles fall off the ears of corn. A woman's blood was viewed as especially dangerous to men's power. Some historians surmise that early rites around the cycles of women were the very first expressions of human culture. This story in the Bible about the 12-year-old girl who died just before she would experience this change, and the older woman who has been bleeding for 12 years are laced with traces of this. They call all of this to mind. It's obvious that for the religious systems of the day, female reproductive blood was an intense subject. There was a vast array of legislative material devoted to it. An entire tractate of the Babylonian Talmud. Everything a bleeding woman sat on or touched, anyone who touched anything she sat on or anything she came into contact with, and anyone who touched anything, the person who touched the thing she touched was rendered unclean. Apparently, very powerful stuff. Female blood could defile entirely ceremonial complexes if even a trace was introduced to them. And so it's excluded from these sacred spaces pretty much without exception. This actually continues in Christianity. Alexandria, a student from 
the renowned Church Father Origen writes concerning women, whether it is right for them in such a condition to enter the house of God, I think it's unnecessary to inquire, for I think they, if they are faithful and pious at all, would not dare in such a condition to approach the holy table or to touch the body and the blood of Christ. From this and many, many, many other patriarchal lines of reasoning, women are excluded from ordination. It's kind of crazy. It's like there was two genres of blood. One that had its place in the religious system, sacrificial blood, and one that didn't have a place at all, female reproductive blood. And there's a dramatic tension between the two. A bleeding woman was a threat to sacred space. Her blood was a threat. It was like dangerous, defiling. The patriarchal religious system was meticulous about excising any remnant of matriarchal mythology. The power of that blood had absolutely no place in their official story. So they declared it unclean, and they regulated it like mad. So, the Gospels. Mark tells a story about a woman who's been bleeding nonstop for 12 years. I don't even know if that's really medically possible. But what a great character for the Gospels to introduce. This is wildly unacceptable to the system creature. More than an outcast, an outlaw, this fountain of female blood. Mark's clear that she's been suffering, but she doesn't seem to be weak. She's out walking around in the crowd without a man, husband, son, or father, violating the norms for proper, submissive female behavior all over the place. She knows her supposed power to defile, but she makes her way through the crowd stealthily to touch Jesus. She initiates the contact. She isn't offered healing. She claims it for herself, without permission from anybody. So not the sleeping beauty. Jesus heals and does miracles a lot in Mark. But this is the only time when some sort of life-giving force heals without Jesus explicitly willing it. The story is just out of bounds. It doesn't follow the rules of healing stories. Jesus senses that some power has left him when the women with the issue of blood get a hold of him. But he doesn't get mad or try to take the power back. And she doesn't slink away having gotten what she wanted. He looks for her in the crowd. She steps up. She admits what she's done. I mean, she, should get, she could get in so much trouble, bleeding all around, touching everything and everybody, <laughs> defying sacred social legal boundaries left and right. And then the text says she tells him the whole truth. What is that, the whole truth? 
vastly bigger and vaster and more intimate and deep than the system can quite bear. The whole truth winding its way outside and inside the system, blowing down the narrow path of the official story, bursting its bounds. And then Jesus says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. What kind of faith did she have that makes her so bold? She hasn't been following the rules or reciting the creed. Pretty sure she wasn't saying, I believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What kind of faith? Something maybe a little different than what the church fathers would exactly prescribe. But Jesus sees her faith. He finds it in her, in her reckless movement towards him. I mean, isn't that beautiful? And I think the faith needs her. Jesus takes the time to find her in the crowd, speak to her. He brings the bleeding woman, this boldly transgressive character, into the family of faith. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Isn't that gorgeous? Or am I being dramatic? And hopeful. Makes the family of faith seem like it might be interesting. I'd rather talk to her at a family gathering than Peter, Paul, James, John, Tom, Dick, or Harry. And then, while Jesus is still speaking to this woman, Mark writes, some from the ruler's house came to tell Jairus, one of the rulers of the synagogue, one of the guys in charge of the system, that it's too late. Jesus took too much time with this bleeding woman. So now Jairus' daughter is dead. It seems like Jesus' encounter with this bleeding woman might have terrible consequences. Might mean this still pure, though barely 12 years old, might mean her end. See? The catastrophic, defiling woman blood. But actually, no. Jesus goes to the ruler's house and he says to the daughter of the man of the system, little girl, arise. I mean, whoa. Doesn't that seem a little like a call to revolution? Little girl, I say to you, arise. The stories we tell our children are important. What you instill in the children of the populace might help to make them more or less governable, might make them more or less accepting or rebellious. Jesus, God incarnate, goes around upending the status quo constantly. The religious system of the day was pretty much scared of this from the very beginning. And the church founded in his name hasn't been much different. Hasn't proven to be that much better than a lot of ruling systems. I mean, geez, we haven't even got close to dismantling the patriarchy. 
So there's been decades of fervent dissent. The power is always going to try to convince its subjects that if we aren't subservient somehow to the status quo, to the established hierarchy, to the powers that are in place, we're going to lose something really valuable. Things won't work if the system doesn't run. If we don't succumb to the myths the established hierarchy puts in place, we'll die or something. Jesus says, no, no. Take my body, my blood, my spirit, eat it and drink it, take it into you and live. It's a lot different than what the powers feed you. Take it and eat it. It's both a comfort and a challenge. 